Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 39, Deuteronomy chapter 28 continued. Well, we began the very long chapter 28 of Deuteronomy last week, and we're going to finish it up this week. But you need to settle in and get comfortable, because we got a lot to accomplish tonight. Now, the first section of Deuteronomy 28, that was verses 1 through 14, entail a reciting of the blessings that Israel would receive from the Lord if... That big word, if they will listen to and obey him. And the usual way that Israel would listen to God was by learning the commandments and laws that Moses had taught them and then by doing them. Too often, too often we modern Christians think that in order to, for, for us to know for certain, what Yehovah wants of us, we need some kind of personal spiritual revelation or intervention about each of the countless circumstances that we encounter in our lives. Uh, a thing often referred to in sermons as seeking God's specific will. And that's certainly a good thing. But scriptures teach us that almost everything regarding God's will for us has already been established in the word of God. So it's there that we need to turn for, for most of our answers. Of course, our hope is usually to find a pretty good loophole. All right, to avoid what it is we know we ought to do or not do. Now, the remainder of this chapter deals with the opposite of blessings, which are called curses. And a good way to think of these curses um, are as divine threats. Okay. In fact, the ancient sages and later the rabbis have given a title to this particular list of curses we find here in Deuteronomy 28. Tokeah. Tokeah. Which means warning. Warning. And then the warning is that just as obedience brings a well-defined series of possible blessings upon Israel, so disobedience brings a well-defined series of possible curses, consequences upon Israel. Now, we read about these curses last week, and we're not going to do it again, because, but you can refer to the verses starting at verse 15 for this list of curses. I highly recommend that you have your Bibles open right now to Deuteronomy 28, Start at verse 15, because I don't want you to get lost. We've got a lot to cover tonight, and there's just not time to completely read this whole chapter again. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that we're going to crash headlong into some immutable God principles that have been practically doctrinized, if that's a word, away in our era. So it may challenge some things that you've always taken for granted that it didn't apply to you. Now remember that what's happening here is that Moses is reteaching the laws of the Mount Sinai covenant to the second Exodus generation. And he's expounding on those laws in a sermon style. Now the first generation of the Exodus is dead and buried as a result of the curse 
from God upon them because they refused to go forward and take the promised land early on in their wilderness journey. It was that first generation who trembled as they saw that smoke billowing up from the summit of Mount Sinai. They heard God's thundering voice that that, that made them instinctively drop to their knees and cry out in fear. They witnessed the giving of the covenant to Moses. And unanimously they declared that all that God had said they should do, they would do. 38 years later, Moses is now presenting the terms of that same covenant to the second Exodus generation. Okay, The sons and daughters of those who walked out of Egypt. And he's telling them that they need to vow to accept its terms just like their fathers did. See, there's a great principle here. We're not each redeemed by what our fathers and mothers agreed to. What they did. But by what we agree to and what we do. We can be raised in the most wonderful believing Christian home, go to church with our parents, join in the congregational prayers and fellowships. We can speak all the Christian lingo. That counts for exactly nothing when it comes to our personal salvation. We must each declare our allegiance to the covenant that God has made available to us. If we do not, then we're not made a member of the covenant and we live outside of its terms. It was like that for Israel. It's like that for us today. Now the first six curses are general in nature and they're the precise mirror opposites of the six blessings that were listed back in verses 1 through 6. So verse 3 corresponds to verse 16 whereas obedience to the covenant uh, terms that Israel has agreed to brings blessing to you whether you're in the city or the countryside. Disobedience, disobedience brings curses upon you whether you're in the city or the countryside. Verse 4, fruitfulness corresponds to verse 18. The blessing of abundance versus the versus abundance that's being held back from you. Verse 5 corresponds to verse 17 and so on and so forth. What's the obvious lesson? Obedience and disobedience brings opposite results. Starting in verse 20. The curses are expanded upon. They're made more specific. Now depending on your Bible translation, three descriptive words are used for what God will do to defeat a rebellious Israelite or a rebellious nation of Israel in everything they try to accomplish. The translation of that list that I most like to use is that Yehovah will cause curse, cumbrance, and confusion. I like it because they all start with the letter C. It's easy to remember. Okay. See, but this also reflects, reflects exactly how the Hebrew reads. Because the list of those three descriptive words in Hebrew also begin all with the same letter, Amem. And just like in English, the purpose of doing that, of course, is to make it memorable. 
Now the first consequence of the three is in Hebrew, merah, which means curse in the, in the sense of enduring a calamity. The second is meomah, and it means confusion. And it refers to the panic and the chaos typically caused by war or, or intense intense social upheaval. The third is megaret. Megaret. It means cumbrance. It means a heavy burden. It carries with it the idea of frustration and this, this inability to make progress. You're just slogging along in mud. And what brings about these conditions is that Israel has committed great evil by forsaking the Lord. What does that mean to forsake the Lord? The complete Jewish Bible says it means to abandon God. Yet what we find when we view Israel's exiles and punishments in retrospect is that in general, the Israelites did not, in their own minds anyway, stop worshiping God or, or, or acknowledging Yehovah as the God of Israel. We don't find Israel saying, eh, there's no God called Yehovah. Let's just go and disobey him. Instead, over time, they added a few gods to their worship. Some pagan practices. They found reasons to twist the Mosaic laws and, and, and the commands to suit their own pleasures, their own wants. They obeyed the laws they liked. They ignored the ones that weren't so terribly convenient. The point is that to forsake or abandon God in the Bible does not mean that a person who at one time worshipped him now fully renounces him. Rather, it means that a person who has agreed to the covenant terms is now breaking those terms. Biblically speaking, to forsake or abandon God only means to turn our backs on Him. It means to quit obeying Him, quit following His ways. It means to wander away, do our own thing, put the Lord on the shelf, dilute our lives with things of the world that have no place in the lives of those who've been redeemed. That's what it meant 3,000 years ago. That's what it still means today for a believer. Now starting in verse 21, we see three categories of curses emerge. Those involving disease, drought, and war. The first category Moses tells Israel about is pestilence, or, or in other words, virulent disease. Now, three Hebrew words, shafet, kadat, and dalachet, are used to describe the human diseases. But the fact is that no one really knows what the modern equivalents of these are. Therefore, we'll see practically every Bible version have its own list. Whatever they are, they're painful and they're deadly. Now, the next couple of terms could refer to humans or it could even refer to crops. And it either means that humans burn, undoubtedly 
referring to fever, or it could be scorching heat that destroys crops. Verse 23 says that the sky, the heavens, will be as brass, the earth is iron. This is referring to the lack of rain, to the resulting extreme dryness of the ground. Instead of the rain of moisture from the sky, there will be a rain of dust caused by the parched earth, just as our nation saw in the Dust Bowl crisis in the early part of the 20th century and memorialized in Hemingway's great novel, The Grapes of Wrath. Then the aspect of war is added. The Lord, who has promised to rout Israel's enemies, if Israel's obedient, will now rout Israel at the hands of its enemies for their disobedience. The phrase that you find there that says that to march in by a single road, but then to flee on seven roads is an idiom. It simply means that they're going to show up for battle in a nice, orderly battle line, but then they're going to scatter and run for their lives in every direction when their enemy overwhelms them. In fact, the defeat will be so thorough that those who hear of it will view Israel as a horror instead of with the respectful fear that God promises for Israel as a blessing back in verse 10. Now this reminds one of the cowardly attack by Jacob's sons upon the debilitated men of Shechem as a wholly uncalled for reprisal in response to the king's son raping Jacob's daughter Dinah. Jacob told his sons that as a result of their actions he was now a stench in the nostrils of all the surrounding tribes and nations. It's just another way of saying horror. But in all candor, can't help but remind one of the recent war between Lebanon and Israel, whereby Israel was defeated, humiliated, and the great respect and fear throughout the Arab world for Israel's military capability has suddenly turned into a real concern in the Western world of whether Israel can actually defend itself properly anymore. Israel is once again on its way to becoming a horror to the world. And this is going to play a very big role in the end times in Israel. But Jehovah says the curses against Israel, as bad as all this sounds, it's going to get worse. The number of dead Hebrew soldiers is going to be so great that the survivors won't even be able to bury them before their corpses are subject to the scavenger birds and the wild animals. Now, while this is a pretty gross image to us, it pales in comparison to what the real issue was in the minds of those Hebrews. You see, if they're not properly buried, then whatever afterlife their spirits might have enjoyed will never occur. Their spiritual existence ceases. That's what they believed. Verse 27 then begins a theme that's going to expand during the remainder of this chapter. And and that theme is Egypt. Unlike their parents, this second generation of the Exodus didn't witness the terrible blows that God visited upon Egypt. 
They certainly heard about the eyewitness accounts of those calamities as they sat around their campfires. But here Moses is starting to paint a picture for them of those horrors that Egypt experienced and that while God separated Israel from Egypt and allowed only Egypt to suffer these terrors, Israel is going to suffer those same terrors if they rebel against the Lord. So the Lord says that they can expect to suffer from those primarily skin afflictions that you only wish you could die from. But instead they cling to you without relief or hope all of your days. Does that sound like an event in the end times that we read about? One of those skinned afflictions is literally translated as evil boils. It should be noted that this is the exact same words used to describe that devastating skin disease that God allowed to be inflicted upon Job. But purely physical and outward appearing afflictions isn't going to be the end of it. God will curse people's minds such that they'll suffer from dementia. The terms used are madness, blindness, utter confusion. See, it's, it's psychological torment, mental illness that's being described here. And, and where we see the word blindness, it doesn't mean loss of eyesight. It means that one will not be able to discern. You can't comprehend. You can't see the truth that's before you any longer. This is meant to remind the Israelites of Egypt when God brought that thick darkness upon Egypt that was so thick that people literally lost their minds, not just their way. It was an evil spiritual darkness that descended upon Egypt such that neither sunlight nor God's enlightenment shone upon them. Essentially, it was the absence of God's presence that's being threatened. It's a very similar condition that non-believers are going to face for an eternity. Have you ever been in a situation, in a place, where you sensed abject evil? you ever experienced that kind of sensation that causes the the little hairs on the back of your neck to stand on in, but you know what? You couldn't see anything. You really couldn't put your finger on what it is. Have you ever been in a place where you felt that God's light didn't even penetrate or illuminate and instead there was just darkness and death? All you wanted to do was run away. That is the mental blindness, the spiritual darkness that's being described here. But the Lord says, running away is not going to work because I'm going to make it follow you wherever you go. Let me paraphrase verses 30 through 35 for you. Nothing will make sense anymore. Nothing. All the things you used to do that turned out well, don't anymore. Your worst fears 
will be realized when the impossible to imagine happens. Some unknown enemy will kill your your sources of food and livelihood. Your sons and daughters will wind up in foreign places where, where some of them will become slaves, others will die. Logic says this is going to eventually end, everything does, but this time it doesn't. People are going to hate you, but you don't understand why. Everything you've worked for have come honestly by suddenly becomes the property of somebody else. You eventually have a nervous breakdown as a result of the stress of not being able to deal with the chaos, the insanity of the situation. Understand that to, up to this point, everything that Israel has been threatened with, and this is what I'm talking about here, all these threats against them here in Deuteronomy, Everything that was going to happen to them was going to happen to them within the land, inside the borders of the land of Israel. The specter of these terrible things that God's wrath might pour out upon the Israelites will happen while they're in their own land. But then, just when it can't get any worse, the unthinkable happens. Exile. Verse 36 is one of those mysteries, those mystery verses I spoke of at the beginning of this four-chapter series. Because the entire tone suddenly shifts from being hypothetical, if you do this, then this will happen, to being prophetic and inevitable. This is what is going to happen. This turns from being a possibility to being an assurance. Israel will be removed from the land of promise because they will rebel against Jehovah and bring down these curses upon themselves. Notice also that 300 years before Israel ever even had thoughts of installing a king to rule over them, The Lord says he's going to drive the Israelites and their king to a nation that was unknown to their forefathers. A nation that essentially didn't even exist in the days of the patriarchs. Now as we know, the exiles of Israel to another land actually happened. We'll find Isaiah, Jeremiah, especially quoting these verses of Deuteronomy 28. First, to warn Israel to change their ways, and then later on to remind them why all these calamities just happened to them. Surprises some to learn that due to Israel's disobedience and lack of faithfulness to Jehovah, do you know that they were only a sovereign nation for about 80 years? That's right. The modern state of Israel that's barely over 60 years of age, isn't far from approaching the sum total amount of time that biblical Israel was a unified nation in all their history. Under kings David and Solomon, Israel thrived. The 12 tribes lived under one banner. But within three or four years, after King Solomon's death, Israel fell into civil war. They became divided into two kingdoms that are referred to in quite a, quite a number of ways in the Bible. And among these designations are the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom was also called Ephraim Israel. The southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom consisted of ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. It was the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel that was exiled first. About 725 B.C., the powerful Assyrian Empire who had been chipping away at Ephraim Israel's territory for, oh, about a decade. Finally, they conquered Samaria, the capital of that area. And the Assyrians completed their conquest of the northern kingdom. The ten tribes that formed Ephraim Israel removed from the land. They were scattered all over the vast Assyrian Empire. Most of the people were absorbed into scores of cultures that formed Assyria. This is where the legend of the of the ten lost tribes began. About 135 years later, there was a new bully on the block, Babylon. The southern kingdom was all that remained now of Israel until about 596 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded Judah. He destroyed Jerusalem, took a great deal of the population, beginning with the most learned and useful, up to Babylon. This was their second exile. The third and final exile of God's people is marked in time as 70 A.D. because that's when the Romans seized Jerusalem, burned the temple. What we see today in the reemergence of the modern state of Israel is the return from the Roman exile of the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom must according to the prophecies, especially Ezekiel, they must return as well. And to an increasing degree, that is happening today. Back to, back to Deuteronomy now. In the, place, in the place of their exile, the Israelites are going to go from being superior hosts to inferior aliens. They're going to serve the needs of other gods, not Jehovah. And in this place of exile, they will take up planting vineyards and they're going to sow crops, but the locusts is going to destroy them. Even the small joy they may have gained by making and drinking wine is taken away from them. Again, notice that the place where these curses appear of God upon the Hebrews is occurring has now shifted. They were experiencing all these curses, all these calamities in Israel. Now they're still experiencing them in some other land after their exile. It followed them there. Being kicked out of the promised land wasn't the end of the curses. Curses followed them. Now this demonstrates perhaps one of the greatest lessons all of us can ever learn. There is no running from God. There is only running to Him. Jonah is a great example of this lesson brought to life. Turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. 
Book of Jonah, chapter 1. We're going to read chapters 1 and 2. if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The word of Adonai came to Yonah, the son of Amittai. Set out for the great city of Nineveh. Proclaim to it that their wickedness has come to my attention. But Jonah, in order to get away from Adonai, prepared to escape to Tarshish. So he went down to Jaffa, Jaffa, he found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went aboard, intending to travel with him to Tarshish and, and get away from Adonai. However, Adonai let loose over the sea a violent wind which created such stormy conditions that the ship threatened to break to pieces. The sailors were frightened. Each of them cried out to his own god. They threw the cargo overboard to make the ship easier for them to control. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down below into the hold where he lay fast asleep. The ship's captain found him and said to him, What do you mean by sleeping? Get up! Call on your God! Maybe maybe the God will remember us. Maybe we won't die. Then they said to each other, Come, let's draw lots to find out who is to blame for this calamity. They drew lots and Jonah was singled out. They said to him, tell us now, why has this calamity come upon us? What work do you do? Where are you from? What's your country? Which is your people? He answered them, he said, I'm I'm a Hebrew. I fear Adonai, the God of heaven, who made both the sea and the dry land. And at this, the men grew very afraid. And they said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew he was trying to get away from Adonai since he had told them. And they asked him, what should we do to you so that the sea will be calm for us? Because the sea was getting rougher all the time. Pick me up, he told them, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you because I know it's my fault that this terrible storm has come over you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard trying to reach the shore, but they couldn't. Because the sea kept growing wilder against them. And finally they cried to Adonai, Please, Adonai, please don't let us perish for causing the death of this man and don't hold us to account for shedding innocent blood because you, Adonai, have done what you saw fit. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped raging. Seized with great fear of Adonai. They offered a sacrifice to Adonai and they made vows. Chapter 2. Adonai prepared a huge fish to swallow Yonah. And Yonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. And from the belly of the fish, Yonah prayed to Adonai his God and he said, Out of my distress, I called to Adonai and he answered me. From the belly of Sheol, I cried. And you heard my voice. For you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood enveloped me. All your surging waves, they passed over me. I thought, I've been banished from your sight. But I will again look at your holy temple. The water surrounded me and threatened my life. The deep closed over me. The seaweed twined around my head. I was going down to the bottoms of the mountains to a land whose bars would close me in forever. But you, 
You brought me up alive from the pit. Adonai, my God, as my life was ebbing away, I remembered Adonai, and my prayer came into you, into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols give up their source of mercy. But I, speaking my thanks aloud, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation comes from Adonai. Then Adonai spoke to the fish and vomited Yonah out onto dry land. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time here discussing this ancient belief system of the Middle East because I presented it to you with a lot of information on the subject during our years of studying together. But just allow me to simply refresh your memories that it was considered as common knowledge that a god or gods occupied earthly territory or the sky above it, just like a man does. In other words, every nation of people had their own gods and goddesses that operated within and whose powers were limited by the boundaries of that nation. When one wandered across a territorial boundary and entered another nation, a different set of gods took over. Now as hard as to accept as it might be that the biblical Hebrews continued to, be, to believe this and it's very well attested to that they did in scripture even though they had the Torah and they had Yonah, uh, had a Yehovah see, Yonah had to learn the hard way that what the whole world sees as common knowledge and declares to be the politically correct thing isn't necessarily the truth Yehovah gave Jonah an assignment to go to Nineveh and to tell them about the God of Israel. He didn't want to go. So he decided he'd run away. He'd leave the territory of Israel where Yehovah had power. See, he'd go to Tarshish where God didn't exist or at least he had no spiritual authority there. Understand, Jonah wasn't renouncing the God of Israel. He was just escaping from his national jurisdiction. At least that's what he thought. So Jonah chapter 2 tells of Jonah's great realization that you can't escape God just because, because he's everywhere. His authority is universal. I guess Jonah had never read Deuteronomy 28. <laughs> Because it makes this point very emphatically. In Deuteronomy 28, Jehovah was making it clear that wherever the Hebrews might go, his curses will go with them. Because he was still with them. There is no escaping God. Deuteronomy 28.43 Another aspect of the curses upon the lives of the Israelites is stepped upon by God. Their finances. Oh Lord, not that. Not my money. A complete role reversal is taking place. The foreigners who had come to Israel lowly and in need now become higher and wealthier than the Israelites. Israel had been ordered by God, you see, to lend to these poor foreigners due to humanitarian concerns. 
Now, in their accursed state, Israel becomes the borrower from those same foreigners. This humiliation is beyond the pale. Beyond these diseases, psychological trauma, deprivation, the next series of divine threats involves conquest by other nations. The result? Starvation, poverty, servitude to these nations and to their gods. The cause of this next group of curses is the same as all the other categories of curses. Israel disobeyed God. I think if I could wave a magic wand over the modern church and change something, I think it might be to reinsert the word obey into our faith. Somehow... Obedience is now seen as largely irrelevant. We bought our fire insurance, so who cares if we play with matches and burn the house down? I've had a number of people explain to me that they see obedience as legalism. Because they believe that now all we're required to do since the advent of Christ is to love. Love has replaced obedience just as the new has replaced the old. But the scriptures say very plainly that to love God is to obey Him. Verse 46 brings us another reference to the theme of Egypt. I told you to watch for this as we worked our way through these curses. Egypt. Moses says that these never-ending national calamities and reversals of fortune that just seem to build one atop the other serve as a sign and a wonder against Israel for all time that they didn't serve God. It's this same phrase that was used to explain the purpose of the ten plagues upon Egypt. Let me pause here. See if this Egypt reference is becoming clear. Essentially what is happening, follow me, is that Israel's redemption from Egypt is being undone. Scary thought. God is reversing the status and condition of Israel, returning them to Egypt, returning them to slavery, because Israel's rejecting the terms of the covenant by breaking the covenant's terms. <laughs> to receive the blessing of the Lord, to have no joy in it. To receive redemption and not be grateful by means of demonstrating obedience. This is to invite God's curses. What greater lesson is being demonstrated here if not that? I cannot say it strongly enough that the curses upon Israel that we're reading about in Deuteronomy 28 are God doing nothing less than threatening to reverse Israel's salvation history. He brought them out of Egypt where they had served the great enemy He redeemed them, gave them his word, his Torah. But because over time they rejected his love, they rejected his commandments, 
They are essentially renouncing Yehovah. Therefore, they would once again be assigned to serve an enemy as slaves. They would forfeit the privileged status of holiness that God had bestowed upon them, as well as the blessings that were there for the taking as expressed in the Mosaic Covenant. What an incalculable tragedy. But this also raises a terribly difficult issue that the church has wrestled with for centuries. And different segments of the church have come up with different solutions. The issue is, once we've been redeemed, can we return to Egypt, so to speak? Can a person who accepts Messiah Jesus as Lord and Savior renounce that allegiance and have his or her own personal salvation in history reversed? We're certainly not going to discover some new aspect of that terribly difficult question that's caused quite a lot of division within the body of Christ. But on the other hand, can I simply look the other way when a definite pattern is laid out here in the Torah? There is no denying that the New Testament is just chocked full with warnings and examples of people who at one time declared their allegiance to Yeshua and then either renounced it or walked away to some extent that they found themselves right back in Egypt. The Lord opened his hand. He released them back into servitude of an evil master. Do you recall... Yeshua's parable of the seeds that was a metaphor for the gospel being taught to the people and there were all these varying results of it. Luke 8.13 And those seeds that fell on the rocky soil are those who when they hear receive the word with joy but they have no firm root so they believe for a while and in time they fall away. See there's two important elements to this passage. The first is to understand what the phrase fall away means. It means that a person has become apostate. It means that someone no longer has sufficient trust to be counted as among the believers, the followers of God. It's not referring to misbehavior, by the way, here. This isn't about committing a sin. Okay. Second, too many modern church doctrines gloss over the scripture and say that those who believe for a while didn't ever actually believe, they just pretended. Not only is that not what it says, but you will find nowhere in the New Testament any reference to those who fell away from the faith as having never actually believed. By definition, you can't fall away from something you never had. Fall away means to leave the faith in one way or another. Romans 11.22 Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell away, severity. But to you, if you continue in His kindness, God's kindness, otherwise you too are going to be cut off. Notice here the good old mosaic if-then conditional nature of the covenant. If you continue in His kindness, then you'll stay attached as a branch on the olive tree. 
Our new covenant is a conditional covenant. The condition is not that we have to behave perfectly. It's not that if we sin, that's it. Oh, we're going to sin. Rather, it's that we must trust. We must continue to abide in the faith. Or we'll get cut off from the source of our, source of our faith. God. Galatians 5.4 You who are trying to be declared righteous by God through legalism have severed yourself from the Messiah. You've fallen away from God's grace. There were those in Paul's day, there are those today, who think that obedience to the law plus trusting Messiah equals salvation. Not only is this not true, but I'm telling you one cancels the other. If we try to mix together the self-justification of obedience to the law with Christ's justification on our behalf, then we wind up with no justification at all. Do not confuse this with our being justified by Yeshua and then our being obedient to all of God's word as our appropriate response as believers to such overwhelming grace. That's a different thing. Revelation 2.4 But I have this against you. This is Messiah speaking. You've lost the first love you had. Therefore, remember where you were before you fell. Turn from this sin. Do what you used to do before. Otherwise, I'm going to come and remove your menorah, your lampstand, from its place if you don't turn from your sin. That's a pretty major threat. To have your menorah removed is to lose your enlightenment. Yeshua is our enlightenment. Here he's threatening to remove himself. Cut you off. Now listen to me very carefully because I don't want to be misunderstood or misquoted. Indeed, no man... No spiritual being of any kind can ever forcefully, against your will, remove your salvation in Jesus Christ. But Yeshua himself, right here in Revelation, does take it away from those who loved and believed at first, but stopped at their own volition, by their own will, and they just turned back to the ways of sin. They went back to Egypt. They lost their love for him. But 1 Timothy 4.1 says this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some are going to fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, And here we have Paul saying bluntly that in our era, the latter days, some believers are going to fall away. It's inevitable. Just like it was inevitable that Israel would fall away. It's inevitable that some will fall away. 
It's not only possible, it is inevitable that some Christians will fall away from what they had believed and instead put their faith in deceitful doctrines conceived by men. The idea that once we trust a Messiah that it's impossible for us to renounce our faith or to solely transfer that faith to a set of man-made doctrines is questionable. Certainly true that no being, human or spiritual, nobody can take you away from Jesus against your will. Except if that being's you. As long as we each remain in the faith by trusting God, we're safe, we're protected. Misbehavior, committing sins, is not renouncing our faith. It's not falling away. And that's not what's being expressed in these New Testament verses I've shown you. So don't walk out of here worrying that if you broke a commandment of God that you're in danger of having your salvation stripped from you. You're not. Rather, the renouncing of our faith means for us to expressly disavow our former belief that Yeshua is Lord. These New Testament passages we just read indicate that we are apparently as completely free to renounce our faith as we were to accept it in the first place. These New Testament warnings simply follow the pattern established in Deuteronomy. Amid all God has done for them, Israel has turned away from God. So he sent them back to Egypt. Now the good news is that one who was redeemed in Deuteronomy, that's Israel, and who renounces his faith can come to his senses. He can be led back to God. And when he does, he can reclaim his redemption. We will, of course, see the same thing that pertains to Israel a little later in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we have the Apostle James explain in five, James 5.19, My brothers, if one of you wanders from the truth and someone causes him to return... You should know that whoever turns a sinner from his wandering path will save him from death. Cover many sins. James, brother of Jesus, says that if a believer falls away, he's in danger of death. What kind of death? Physical death? Obviously, it's eternal death, because that's the context. Because everyone saved or unsaved is a sign to have their physical body die once. James says that if someone helps a former believer return to the faith, he will save them from eternal death. I'm not here today to confirm or deny whatever doctrine you may believe on this difficult subject. But I want to point out to you that the answer lies in the biblical patterns. Verse 49 of Deuteronomy continues with the prophecy of the coming curses upon Israel at their inevitable fall. It says a foreign nation will swoop down upon Israel quickly in strength with speed. They'll show no mercy. 
everything the Israelites have worked centuries to achieve will be wiped out almost overnight. People will be shut up in their towns and face starvation and death. This is speaking of siege warfare, which of course is exactly what Israel faced against both the Babylonians and the Romans. Now, I don't want to get too graphic, but these final verses are really pretty gruesome. So let me say, let me explain what's being said. Verse 53 absolutely contemplates cannibalism. Some folks will become so hungry it says they'll eat their own children. Verse 54 makes a play on words and explains that the most finicky of eaters, the most aristocratic among the elite of Israel, will not only stoop so low as to eat the bodies of his own children and be very glad for the meal, he'll also not want to share any of it with his starving wife. And to make the point even more profoundly, the wife, who is the most finicky of eaters, and she of the aristocratic elite, will actually eat the remains of birth. And by the way, annals from the two sieges on Jerusalem record that these horrible things actually happened. The final verses of this sickening imagery are of the disease and wasting away that comes as a result of the thousands of corpses that lay stacked like firewood in the besieged city. In verse 68, the reversal of Israel's redemption is complete. The Lord will send the survivors, metaphorically, back to Egypt. In the past, the Egyptian overlords, it says, accepted Israel as their slaves, at least provided them a subsistence living. The Lord God says, you know what? This time Egypt doesn't even want you back as slaves. So despised have you become. And just so there's no misunderstanding, the last words of chapter 28, Deuteronomy, confirm that the covenant given at Horeb, which is just another name for Sinai, and in Moab, are one and the same covenants, so that the Israelites shouldn't be confused and think that things have changed. I'm going to close today with this thought. Just as the terms of the Mosaic Covenant didn't change between Sinai and Moab, neither did they change between Moab and Calvary. God didn't give a forever covenant at Sinai, revoke it, give a new forever one in Moab. Neither did he give us what is commonly called the new covenant and at the same time revoke the previous one. How can I know this? Be so sure of it. (laughs) Because Messiah said so. Matthew 5.17 Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to complete Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a ute or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not till everything that must happen has happened. 
So whoever disobeys the least of those commands and teaches others to do so, they're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.